Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Bucciolato. My partner in crime, Scott Bernstein, has the day off, but we're going to be holding it down. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and spread the word about our podcast. That's very helpful and we appreciate that. Super psyched for today's episode. We have a very esteemed guest and I've been reading this book and so um, I encourage everyone else to go out and get it. I'm really excited to, to dive into this. Our guest is Noah Hurwitz. And his book is El Chapo, The Untold Story of the World's Most Infamous Drug Lord. And uh, this book just came out. And um, before we get Noah in here, I, I, I first found out about this book reading an article in The Nation. And two things struck me. I, I said, A, I've got to get this book. And B, we've got to get this guy on our podcast. And so he's kind enough to join us. So Noah, welcome to the Original Gangsters Podcast. Hey James, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I'm glad you uh, glad you read that Nation piece. That was the one with uh, Zach Siegel, right? Right, correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always good to hear when uh, when the publicity gets more publicity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, right. That's that's part of the point. So, um, re- re- really appreciate your time here. So, um, before we get into the more uh, substantive uh, discussion about your book. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I know you're a reporter, but this is your first book. I mean, how how did you get into writing about cartels and organized crime and 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 reporting in Mexico? Sure. Well, I uh, I was just a humble local reporter in New York City for uh, many years, uh, and uh, that sort of um, you know the the industry is is sort of hurting everywhere, uh, including in New York City. And I got laid off in uh, 2017 and just started freelancing. Um, but before I started freelancing, I, I sort of uh, took my severance and ran away to Peru for a while, um, which is sort of where I got uh, competent once again at Spanish. And when I came back, I started uh, back to the, the U.S. I started um, trying to carve out a bit of a groove, uh, covering sort of domestic drug policy, uh, you know, harm reduction, uh, fentanyl in the heroin supply, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, in the fall of of, the, of 2018, um, long story short, I you know I, I reached out to Rolling Stone about a, a, a job opening. Uh, they got back to me and were like, look, you know, it's not, we're not doing that just yet, but you speak Spanish, you've covered courts in New York city, uh, and you have, you know, a bit of a background in, in sort of drug policy stuff. You know, do you have any interest in, uh, covering the trial of the century? Um, and I, I did. So I, you know, I, it was part, uh, part just like wild luck and part, uh, you know, sort of, uh, just trying to head in that direction and getting a really lucky break early on. Yeah. Wow. Well, what, I mean, think about. I mean, can you imagine, like, you know, um, that being your first major assignment in terms of an organized crime case? <laughs> I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And, you know, it was a, it was a really sort of, uh, you know, fast trial by fire learning experience. You know, I, I had a, I, I've always been fairly interested in, in organized crime and in sort of the, the war on drugs and, uh, you know, the U.S.'s role in in Latin America when it, when it comes to sort of the coercive foreign policy of, of the war on drugs. Um, but I was certainly not an expert. And so, you know, coming into the trial, I really had to um, just really hit the ground running, um, both in terms of, of, you know, researching and, and trying to find out as much as I could and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what was going on 
day to day at the at the trial because there were a lot of people there who you know there were a lot of um, Mexican reporters there uh, writing for uh, both Mexican and U- U.S. outlets, and they were um, really you know really helpful. It was a really collaborative uh, environment, honestly, covering the trial. There, you know, there weren't necessarily too many uh, scoops to be had, so we were pretty uh, willing to, you know, we were all hearing the same testimony, and everyone, you know, there was a, a core group of maybe 24, 30 uh, reporters who were covering the trial day to day from gavel to gavel, and we, we became a pretty tight-knit group, you know, pushed together by sort of the kind of ridiculous hardship of covering a, a long trial in federal court, you know? Um, and so whenever there was something that I need, that I had questions about, there was just this, you know, there were these, these really, you know, sort of preeminent or eminent uh, Mexican reporters who, who really knew their stuff and who could answer questions. And so that was a, that was a really good, you know, I, I will come back to this again and again, but there's so many ways in which I just, you know, would, would be nothing without the, the help of, of colleagues in Mexico. And that was sort of the first, uh, the first uh, example of that. Well, that's that's refreshing to hear. I know my partner Scott Bernstein is a is a reporter or investigative journalist, and I mean, if, if I can may speak on his behalf for a moment, I think for the most part he gets along really well with with other reporters, and there is this like collaborative spirit. But I I know from hearing from him, sometimes journalists do get territorial about things, yeah. and, and may not always be the case. So that's good to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I. I I tend to understand when someone's territorial. I think I've certainly been territorial in the in the past. Um, you know, particularly if I was, let's say, I was like when I was doing local news reporting in New York City, I would always be annoyed when the New York Times got sort of a spoon-fed scoop from from the you know city hall because it was like you know they don't even they don't even spend time in the in the neighborhood on the beat like I do, and they just get handed to it. So I you know I, I honestly I, I was sort of anticipating a little bit of of that going to Mexico because, and I would have understood it, you know, as I didn't go, going to Mexico and, and, you know, with, with, uh, you know, pretty strong resources and, and, uh, you know, uh, an audience when the book came out, um, I, I could, I would have understood if people had been, um, reluctant to speak to me or wary of, you know, who is this guy? Uh, but honestly, that just wasn't, um, wasn't my experience. People were incredibly open with me, incredibly happy to, uh, you know, help me and answer questions I had. And I think part of that was that I was willing to ask questions. You know, I think that sometimes, um, sometimes reporters have a tendency to, to try to know everything. And I, you know, when I went to Mexico and when I would ask questions of, of, um, Mexican reporters, I would always be, you know, try to be very sort of acknowledging the fact that that I did not, do not, and will never know this subject like they do. And I think that that helped, uh, you know, help people want to help me. Yeah, I think that's something that's really engaging about your book is how candid you are, and we use this as a segue to get get into the yeah. the, the 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 content here. Is is I think it's really engaging that you're pretty honest in your book about how like, you know, some of the situations you're in, like you, you felt like it was pretty sketchy and that you were an outsider and it was, yeah. it was pretty obvious you were an outsider and you're dealing with dangerous people. So you, you, there's no like sort of pretense of like, you're like the Indiana Jones of cartel reporting right. or something. <laughs> right. And I also didn't, I also didn't want to play it up too much. You know, I think I, I touched upon a little bit, I touched upon some of the sort of dodgy situations I got in, um, 
reporting in Sinaloa um, and in Ciudad Juarez, I didn't uh, write about all of them because I didn't necessarily want to um, play that up too much. And I, you know, there's this sort of trope. I think I talked about this in the in the introduction to the book of, you know, there's there's all these really sort of trashy um, documentaries about the the drug trade, you know, all over the world, but specifically in Sinaloa are the ones I've watched. And there's always this like there's always this you know sort of tough uh, host who's sort of you know whispering to the camera about how much danger he's in. Oh right. And right. and saying like you know every like you know every uh, every person on the corner could be a could be a cartel spy and you know even though that's uh true to a certain extent i'm really tired of that sort of like you know look at how much look at how much danger we're in so i wasn't trying to do that i I really wanted to use you know the the first person stuff in the book is pretty limited and i saw it more as a vehicle to actually i'm going to use another vehicle metaphor i saw it as sort of putting the you know putting me in the passenger seat and and i'm the eyes for the for the reader to sort of see this as i saw it you know, to, to sort of paint a picture. And so I, you know, I saw my, you know, the, the sort of first person stuff useful to it in that way, to a limited degree and no more than that. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're, it, you're successful at it too. And like I said, I think it's, it's very engaging read a, a rip roaring read too, if I, <laughs> if I may say, um, but very engaging. So, I mean, one of the things that you start off the book with, and, you know, it made me think of this when you said that, that you thought maybe there'd be some territorial aspects where journalists were like, what does this guy know about this and why is he here? And and you actually talk about that in your book, not not with journalists, but with some of your sources. And at one point, one, one source asks you, why are you asking so many questions about El Chapo? Like what's up, what, what's up with like the sort of fascination and fixation yeah. on him? And I think I, I really like how you address that, that like at first you're like, you know what, that's a good question. <laughs> I have to, I have to ponder that. And you were yeah. honest about that. If you can respond to, uh, and talk about that, that process. Yeah. So that was, that was, there was a couple things going on there. I mean, I was, so that was my second trip to Sinaloa. That was in uh, May of 2019. And my, I was working with a, with a um, local journalist who, who was working as my, as my fixer, basically, you know, I was, um, I hired him to help set up interviews and help, uh, you know, bring me to uh, El Chapo's hometown of La Tuna up in the mountains of, of Sinaloa. Um, and one of the interviews that he set up for me was with this guy, Beto. And now Beto was a um, nephew, quote unquote, probably a cousin of El Chapo. He was from a little town um, up in the mountains, really close to El Chapo's hometown. And he had worked closely with his, with his uncle for, for many years. Um, and now, you know, at the point that I talked to him, um, I wasn't sure exactly if he was working for anyone or just sort of, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are working in the drug trade. It's not necessarily as like hierarchical as people might think it is. So he was like somewhere in the drug trade in, in Sinaloa. And I, you know, I, I get to the, uh, the meeting with Beto and it's, it's, you know, he was late. Um, it was late. I had been doing interviews in Spanish all day. I was exhausted. And Beto shows up and with, you know, two sort of bodyguards or henchmen, and he, he makes us move from the window to a, a seat in the cafe, like against the wall. And he mentions, hey, I think I saw some like gunmen outside. They were making me nervous. That's why I'm late, whatever. So, it, it, you know, it starts off with this sort of, um, you know, it, it, it just a, a little bit dicey. And then, you know, Beto has like a, a handgun in his waist that I, I see him sort of fidgeting to cover it. And so I was not at my best at this interview. Honestly, I was tired and, and, and sort of off my game and a little bit intimidated, honestly. And he asked this question. He's like, you know, not, not even so much why the fascination with El Chapo, but why do gringo reporters always come to Sinaloa to ask about the drug trade? 
And, um, you know, I think, I think I, I, you know, I muttered something sort of kind of lame uh, <laughs> about, uh, you know, it's a big issue and there's a big issue in the United States with drugs. And I think it's really useful to understand where it comes from. And, um, it, it wasn't the best, uh, it wasn't the best answer. And I, but I thought about it a lot. Um, I thought about it a lot because it was, you know, it is a good question, right? And I think that the motives of, of people going to Sinaloa are not always what my motives, you know, they're not always the best motives. And I, I think that, not to say that my motives were pure, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of coverage of the war on drugs um, and specifically of the drug trade in Mexico that's sort of uh, sensational and salacious and doesn't dig into sort of the, the, the grittier social, political, economic, historical issues. And so if I could, you know, if I could, if I could have answered Beto again, um, I think I would have tried to explain to him something about how there's so much information out there about, you know, about El Chapo, about your nephew or your uncle, um, and about the drug trade in Sinaloa. And I think so much of it doesn't really illuminate the realities of your life and the realities of your family's life and the, the, the reason that, that people go into the drug trade and the, the relationship between the drug trade and the state. And so my goal here is to uh, better illuminate that and put it in context and give readers in the United States an understanding of why you do what you do and why others do what they do. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to um, give Beto another answer because you know, a couple, uh, maybe like a month and a half later, I was, I was planning to go back to Sinaloa for another trip. And I was planning to talk to Beth, though, in, you know, in, in part to answer the question, but also because, you know, I, I had sort of flubbed the first interview. And I think he would have been able to give me a lot of really good information if I had uh, had another shot. But shortly before I was headed to Sinaloa, I got a call from um, my fixer, this guy named Miguel Angel Vega, who is just, uh, you know, I can't, I can't speak of him highly enough. Um, again, I wouldn't have been able to do the book without him. Anyways. Miguel Angel calls me and he says, dude, Beto's dead. They, they killed Beto. And what happened was, I, you know, the story that, that I heard from Miguel and then later from Beto's family was that um, he got a call from people saying they were cops. They, they might have been cops. They might not have been cops. Uh, the line is kind of blurry sometimes. And, the, and these cops supposedly said, you know, we, ha- we picked up one of your guys. You need to come meet us with $10,000 cash if you want to get him back. And Beto got, you know, rounded up. $10,000 cash. He got one of his, one of his, a, a guy who hadn't been picked up and he went to meet the, the uh, kidnappers and uh, he was never seen again. His, his body was found a few days, days later um, on the outskirts of Culiacan. He had been tortured and, and shot and um, as had the, the guy who had originally been picked up. And last I checked, the third um, guy who went with Beto uh, was, was disappeared. You know, he was one of many uh, young men in in Sinaloa who is you know who just is vanishes and is not heard from again, and so yeah, th- this was a really I mean it was it was upsetting and it was uh, it was uh, scary and it was really you know it really underscored the the stakes of what's happening you know the the stuff that I'm reporting on and the the people that I'm talking to um, and. It, it was, you know, it, it really, um, he stayed on my mind, you know, whenever I was, w- was working on this book, whenever I was talking to people, whenever I was, um, 
you know, thinking about this in any way because it was, you know, it was, it was real. And the reason, you know, the, the reason that I included him uh, in part sort of as a, as a way of, of posing that question to the reader, but also because, you know, I just, I think that there's so much discussion of violence in, in Mexico that doesn't give faces or names or a sense of the impact of that violence. And I wanted to talk about people who weren't necessarily gunmen, but, you know, uh, many of the victims of this war on drugs are uh, participants in it. And you can't, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not victims. And so I, I wanted to show that there could be an imperfect, probably bad person whose, whose death is still a tragedy and, and still weighs on his family, you know? And so I, I, I that, that was just, um, yeah, I mean, rest in peace, Beto, you know, he, he, that was the life he chose and, and guys in that business don't often live that long. And so it wasn't necessarily, you know, um, you know, I don't know. It's just, I think many people would say, you know, good, he got what he deserved or he got what was coming. And, and, and I, I sort of get that. I get that re reaction, but I don't agree with it. You know, Beto didn't deserve to die. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty, um, glib way of, of, of looking at it. Not that you have to, you know, romanticize or, or sympathize necessarily, but, um, yeah, I can't imagine someone who's having that kind of response, but I agree with you. I mean, we know that, that there is this sort of social, social Darwinistic, like, well, Hey, these are bad guys and they do bad things to each other, but. Well, and, and part of the sensational coverage of the war on drugs is this, you know, highlighting all of the, all of the violence in Mexico in a way that really, it, you know, it creates this idea of this, like, just almost sort of like, almost sort of unimaginable savagery. And there is an, a sort of unimaginable savagery to a lot of the violence. But I think that there starts to be this, this uh, understanding among people who are casually aware of the issue of there being some kind of line between, you know, normal people and so-called cartel members. And so-called cartel members are just so beyond the pale that it, they're just, it's just, they're, they're a caricature, you know, not, not, not human. And so I didn't want there to be any caricatures in my book. I wanted everyone to be human, including El Chapo. Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I really like about your book too, is, I mean, you're already talking about this with Beto, but I like how, even though it is about El Chapo, obviously he's the anchor of this story and the most compelling figure, but you do talk about other people. This is not a book a biography in the sense of, oh, well, here's what El Chapo did on Sunday, and this is what he did on Monday. And this right, is, like right. you talk about the the pe not only the people in his inner circle, but the people like like that probably never even interact with him. People at the lower right. tiers, middle tiers, uh, sometimes on both sides of the border, and I think that's really interesting, and that gives you like a lot more context about um, the the nuances of this issue that um, as opposed to just a biography of a kingpin. If, right. that, if that makes sense, that As, makes perfect sense. And that was that was sort of from the beginning, from, you know, from the from the moment that I even was working on the book proposal, I, you know, there was a part of me that was almost like, do we need another biography or another book about El Chapo? Do we need another piece of media that's just about a kingpin? Um, and I mean, the answer to that is is no. You know, we don't need a book that's just about an, a kingpin. Um, but I thought, hey, I can do something different. I can, I can tell this really fascinating personal story about a really interesting guy with a really bizarre sort of long interesting career 
and I can, but I can use that more importantly, use that story to tell this larger story, to tell this larger context. Um, and so, so that was sort of, that was sort of my goal from the beginning was to sort of transcend the idea of a, a biography and more use El Chapo's life and career arc as a, as a way of understanding the, the time and place that he came out of and was part of and helped shape. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think in many ways I would say this is not really a biography of El Chapo. This is a, more of a social and political history of drug cartels and, and El Chapo right. happens to be the lead, you know, the, the lead character because he is, he is right. compelling. And um, he's compelling and it's, it's difficult to get American readers to care about anything outside of America. And so I'm sorry if I'm, you know, if I, if I can, you know, people are interested in El Chapo and if I can use that interest in El Chapo to tell what is to me a more interesting story while also telling the, the very interesting story of El Chapo, I'm going to take that as an opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's it definitely it's successful. And and one thing that I find compelling about the book is how it's impossible to make sense of how drug cartels operate, what they're doing, both in terms of economics and the violence and the and the politics of it, without understanding U.S. foreign policy toward Latin America in general and Mexico specifically. Um, it's just impossible. And if you think, if someone's out there and you think you understand the cartels, but you, you don't take into account U.S. foreign policy, I'm sorry, right. you're ignorant. You don't, you, you, right. you don't understand. And, and that just, it's in the, it's in the, um, uh, it's just almost everything you're talking about. That's always either front and center, or at least in the background of how right. the, the, the ripple effect of U.S. foreign policy. So, um, I mean, what, if you can comment on that, I mean, I know that's an important premise in your book. Yeah, U.S. foreign policy has shaped virtually every aspect of of Mexican politics and society. Uh, you know, essentially since the since the Mexican Revolution, which which you know ended in the late nineteen twenties, it's been you know they're they're direct neighbors, and the U.S. has seen Mexico sort of almost as its its own territory. And um, when it comes to drugs, that has been particularly true because the demands of the U.S. Uh, sort of the, the U.S. has stated like zero tolerance uh, war on drugs policy is that no country can have a, a policy that sort of deviates from uh, U.S. policy on that issue. You know, we saw that in the 1940s in Mexico when uh, there was a brief uh, experiment to legalize uh, drugs, you know, give give heroin to to, to addicts, and um, the U.S. basically put a stop to that, you know. And so it 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 boggles the mind to wonder how things could have turned out differently if that you know one incident, if if if, the, if Mexico had been allowed sort of the sovereignty to to make that decision for itself, and that comes up again and again, you know, in the in in 1969. Uh, the the U.S. sort of um, uh, basically the Nixon administration shut down the entire U.S.-Mexico border just to show Mexico that it could. You know, they they were like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna be checking every car that comes into the United States, and they shut down border traffic for 21 days. Um, and you know, it, it, at the time, it was viewed as sort of almost as a failure. You know, the New York Times had this editorial uh, just after this operation called Operation Intercept 
finished where they said, you know, it was a debacle, whatever. Um, and later in his, in his uh, autobiography, uh, G. Gordon Liddy, you know, the, the yeah, Watergate bad course, man, right. wrote this, you know, uh, I'm not going to try to get the exact quote, but he basically wrote, you know, Operation Intercept has been called a failure, but only by people who didn't understand its true motive. It was an exercise of diplomatic extortion, pure and simple. And that just puts it so well. You know, that just like the U.S., in truth, the U.S. has a pretty fluid policy on drugs. You know, if you're if you're a government that the U.S. supports or if you're, say, a uh, you know, militia in, in Southeast Asia that the government supports or if you're a secret police agency in Mexico in the 1980s that the CIA supports, you're probably going to get away with drug trafficking. But if you are a government that the U.S. has problems with, then and, and you have any sort of issues of corruption or links to organized crime, the U.S. is going to use that as a, as a sort of coercive tool to try to discredit you and get you in line. And so we see again and again that the, the U.S. Uh, actively looked the other way when certain elements in the Mexican state were very closely linked to drug trafficking and then you know, forced policy changes in other aspects of, of, of the Mexican state when they wanted, you know, when they wanted a change on drugs or, or on anything, really. And so, you know, I think that I don't want to overstate, you know, I think sometimes um, more, more like left-wing analyses of, of uh, issues in other countries tend to be pretty overly simplistic in like how much the U.S. is to blame uh, and I, I don't want to overstate this. I think that, you know, the, the, the Mexican state has a deep and, and, you know, continuing, uh, involvement with organized crime. Uh, but it, it, it goes hand in hand with, with us foreign policy. And so I, you know, I, I kind of didn't want to let anyone off the hook. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, proper way to look at it or, or a smart way to look at it. And yeah, I mean, I would say that um, if, if someone thinks that like the war on drugs exists in its own, uh, in a vacuum or something like that, no, it, it's, it's about larger American foreign policy. And then the war on right. drugs just is, is a sort of uh, fits into that paradigm. So, so for, for a lot of the period you're writing about, at least, at least, you know, in, in the, um, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s is is the the war, um, you know, anti-communism. In other right. words, so it's impossible yeah. to understand U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, whether it's drugs or economic policy, uh, without without contextualizing. And and if and if you are if you were an anti-communist, then yes, it seems like the U.S. was a lot more lenient <laughs> with yeah. your drug trafficking, right? Le- lenient, <laughs> lenient, or or actively, uh, you know, aiding and abetting. Yeah, right, right. Like the like the Mexican Secret Services you mentioned, right. the the Contras, um, and we could even I don't want to digress too much, but globally we can look at the the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the eighties, yeah. uh, um, Southeast Asia during Vietnam. So yeah, I, I will say you know after after people buy my book and read my book, um, I highly recommend this book called The Politics of Heroin by Oh Alvin yeah, McCoy, right. That really you know it goes really in depth about the CIA's involvement in in drug trafficking in virtually every area that they were involved in from directly after World War II. You know, they they teamed up with mobsters in in Marseille, France, to take over the the port to keep the communists out. 
you know, they, they teamed up with militias in, in the hill, in the hills of, of Southeast Asia. Uh, they teamed up with the Mujahideen, and they teamed up with uh, the uh, federal security director, the, this this secret police agency in Mexico that in the 1980s essentially was a, a drug trafficking organization. Yeah, that is that's a that's a classic text, dude, and I, I I agree with you. I recommend that as well. Um, you you just mentioned something interesting, and I think this comes through strong in your book as well. That um, although it's honest about the role that. American foreign policy is playing. It's not necessarily a blame America first text. And you right. do talk about the corruption within the Mexican government. And that, that was really enlightening to me because I admit that's, that's not my, my, my specialization. I'm not a comparative political scientist. And where you talk about how the, um, the federal police and just the federal government at the different layers, how, how they would, um, use, uh, the, the so-called war on drugs to sometimes suppress political dissent and other times, just correct me if I'm wrong, but like sort of regional rivalries, that's not the right way to put it. But if if the feds feel like a, a state is getting um, too powerful or something, yeah. they, they send the federales in. And so they, yeah. they, have, they have their different motives. And, and um, you know, when you talk about the, the drug violence from the cartels, and, and that's obviously real and it's scary and, and you talk about that. But it comes through in your book that a lot of this violence is from the state. This is state violence, a lot of it. Yes, that's absolutely true, and that was you know in in the in the seventies, eighties, and even nineties, um, you know, drug, violence in Mexico associated with drug trafficking was significantly less than it is now. And part of the reason for that is that you know you didn't have the sort of paramilitary uh, private armies uh, that that you see now. You know, since since the late nineteen nineties, there's been this big rise in in sort of a, a paramilitarization of the drug trade in Mexico. And a big reason for that was in the 80s, if I was a drug trafficker and I wanted to get rid of a rival, I would just get you know, the cops who I pay or the soldiers who I pay to kill him or arrest him, take his drugs and sell them to me. Um, a lot of the dirty work was sort of farmed out to the government. And as the government's control of the drug trade began to break down, in the 90s, you know, as the sort of the ruling party, the the uh, PRI, which had ruled Mexico since uh, basically 1930, as their grip over the country began to break down, and opposition parties started to win governorships and and you know local municipal elections, um, the the negoti- the sort of the, the negotiated pacts between drug traffickers and local authorities and federal authorities started to break down, and so drug traffickers started to basically tool up. You know, they started to uh, recruit. Special former special forces soldiers, and they started to get more weapons, which you know that that increased in nineteen uh, two thousand four when the assault weapon ban uh, expired, and and assault weapons started to pour across the border into Mexico, and so you see this dramatic shift where the the drug trafficking organizations continue or start to uh, do more of the violence themselves, and that really exploded in 2006 and 2007, when under US pressure, uh, President Felipe Calderon sent in the military to sort of wage a war on drug traffickers. And, you know, like you said, so much of this violence was from the state. The murder rates from the moment that the military went in just skyrocketed, you know? The, The really bad period that we've basically been in, that Mexico has basically been in since 2007 is a direct result of the involvement of the military in 
the supposed uh, fight against drug trafficking. And so I, yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I really felt it was important to, uh, you know, to, to clarify that our understanding of the war on drugs, it's not just fights between different drug trafficking organizations. It's a multi-sided, really sort of like convoluted conflict with many motivations and many belligerent forces, one of which, or several of which, are state uh, security agencies. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's fascinating, and obviously it's complicated, but that's something I'm learning too from reading your book is that um, not all the violence there is is one cartel, you know, whacking a, a member of another cartel. Right. Obviously, that happens, but it's way more it's way more complicated than that. Where sometimes security forces, like we're talking about the government, sometimes they they some of the guys work for one cartel and some of the guys work for another cartel, and trying to yeah. sort that out. I mean, it's it's, it's mind boggling. And then so then that's not to take into account the local police versus the state police versus the federal right. police. And then something that I also learned from your book is that um, a lot of the violence is at the street gang level that, that once, um, especially in, in Juarez, once the, the population, we're talking about Mexicans, developed more of an appetite for drugs. As you point out, you, the old school way was almost all the drugs were smuggled to the, to the United States. But but right. once once the um, locals started to develop their own appetite for drugs, th- then like kind of old school gang drug territory became more important, and a lot of the violence is is just at a street level. So yes. um, it's just way more complicated than thinking that you know cartel assassins are killing other cartel guys. Right. Um, it's way more elaborate than that. Right, and 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 that even that is connected to the United States because you know you mentioned um, Juarez and Juarez grew at this tremendous rate. Uh, in the 90s, sort of after the introduction of the North American Free Trade Agreement, there grew this this sort of industry of factories right on the border that had no tariffs. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people flocked to Ciudad Juarez. And there was this, you know, this underclass of poor young men who didn't have jobs and who, you know, didn't, their moms were working in the factories and they were, they didn't have a, a lot of sort of social infrastructure, and they started. Uh, they started, you know, to join gangs. And at the same time, there was this dramatic increase in demand for methamphetamine in Ciudad Juarez because it helped workers work these sort of inhu- inhuman long hours at the factories. And so there's this direct link between sort of the the, the economic interests of the United States and and the Mexican government, and you know, a few Mexican billionaires. And sort of the violence that that begins to build up on the on the street level. Well, I think yeah, when we're talking about U.S. foreign policy and then and how that plays a role in what's going on in Mexico, I mean, NAFTA seems to be like the, one of the key points to understanding this. And so you talk about how so then so then now capital can move to the south, and so then they're opening up the uh, is it the maquiladoras? Is that how how you pronounce right. the yeah. the, the factories? Yeah. And then, so so there, there's that. So industrialization, and then deindustrialization when there's an economic right. downturn. But also, you talk about the tariffs. How this how this is uh, this puts strain on local growers. You know, people who grow produce. What we think of as and they would ship. You know, uh, the the th- through through local markets. And so 
that puts them out of business. So a lot of them, guess what they get into? They get into opium and marijuana. Right. <laughs> so right. they talk about a ripple effect, a shit show. Well, and then, of, yeah, well, I mean, and, and, and then it, and it extends to the United States because so many of the places where we see the, you know, the opioid epidemic really taking root in the early 2000s are these sort of deindustrialized cities in, in, in the Rust Belt where people had lost jobs because jobs had gone to factories in Mexico. You know, it's all so it's all connected. The demand for drugs in, say, you know, Dayton, Ohio, raises because people are depressed and and don't have jobs and have nothing to do. And, you know, the people who have lost their farms in in Mexico then have to join the drug trade. And so, you know, it's really just, you know, I don't want it to sound like it is, you know, just such a headache because I, I think that there really is something um, thrilling about making these connections. And that was what I was, was trying to do throughout while also, you know, while also, uh, trying as much as possible to sort of tell a, a, uh, you know, the real story of, of El Chapo's, you know, genuinely wild and, 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 and interesting life. Yeah. I mean, you, when I was reading the the chapters on, on Juarez, I, we uh, have host our podcast here from Detroit and uh, so I did see some parallels, absolutely, when you talk about the yeah. Rust Belt and deindustrialization and the rise of the the drug trade. I and mean, if I can ask you something, I mean this this wasn't this wasn't this didn't have to do with El Chapo, but you mentioned it in your book, and, and and it is part of the larger context in terms of like human rights abuses and and violence. And in Juarez, I think was where you were talking about the the misogyny, like the violence against women. Um, yeah, it's almost like uh, I think you mentioned something like almost imagine like a serial killer, but on a, uh, but on a, a mass scale. Um, what, what's, what's going on with that? I mean, that that's, seems really bizarre that, um, and, and sad and it's underreported. Yeah. I mean, so I, I can't speak in too much detail because that just wasn't, uh, the biggest focus of my, of my reporting, but you know, the, in, in Ciudad Juarez in the, in the nineties and two thousands, um, you know, the, the majority of the workforce was women and they would they often lived in very far flung neighborhoods and they would take buses to work. And there there rose this just horrifying trend of women disappearing uh, in, in Juarez and, and turning up, you know, mutilated and murdered in the desert. And what I you know, the 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 work that I have read on this sort of this trend of what they're called, what are called femicides is that, you know, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just one monster stalking Ciudad Juarez. It was an expression of a violent, misogynistic environment where there was impunity, you know? There was impunity. Many of the killers were probably cops. Many of the killers were probably connected to cops. And so when, when there's a sense of, of impunity, you know, when something like 1% of murders are ever solved... Uh, I, I think that that can be sort of a invitation for the worst excesses of, I, I hate the term human nature, but sort of the worst excesses of violent misogyny and sort of a devaluation of life to, to, to rise up. And I, you know, I think that we definitely saw that in, in Ciudad Juarez. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a striking example again of how this text is not just about the kingpins um, that um, really how this um, really is hurting just a lot of 
average citizens yeah. and on both yeah. sides of the of, of the border. Um, just really, really, really tragic aspect of this. Um, but I can ask you a few other things about uh, sure. get into more of a. We talked a lot about some of the macro stuff, but some of the micro stuff that I find interesting. Um, one thing I, I really am interested in as a criminologist is sort of like the sociology of these or political science of these organizations. And so one thing that you, you know, are, you, you make, you break it down. And I think it makes sense that the cartels are not like the Italian mafia, like a hierarchical, like guys with actual ranks, you know, and right. guys give orders that you have, you have the, you have the, the bosses and they have their enforced circle of enforcers and advisors. But other than that, it's more of like a network than, yeah. than, um, you know, a hierarchical organized crime group. And I, I think that was really fascinating. And something I didn't realize is that you talk about in terms of how to actually get the drugs to the United States, the cartels will, the bigger groups like El Chapo's group, they actually make alliances with local crime families who, who right. you have been smuggling for a long time. Right. And I just, I thought that was really interesting how you, how you explain that, if you want to comment on that situation. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's a, uh... There's this, I feel like we talk about cartels, right? We talk about the Sinaloa cartel, the Gulf cartel, you know, the, the Jalisco New Generation cartel. And I, it, it, I think we tend to sort of overstate, as you said, that the, you know, the, these, these do not have, they're not organizational charts. They're not card carrying members of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, there are, you know, even within the so-called Sinaloa cartel, there are different factions. You know, essentially, it is um, it is a, a a group of wealthy, powerful drug traffickers who do have you know people working for them, and then they work together. And then sometimes they don't work together. Sometimes they work on their own, and sometimes they fight each other. And you know, one thing that I that I think um, you know I, I tried to sort of um, as much as possible follow sort of like the supply chain. Right. And yeah, it wasn't that like El Chapo necessarily uh, was the boss of whatever uh, sort of smuggler operation was getting the drugs across the border in from, say, Juarez to to uh, El Paso. Um, he would he was pretty adept at at making alliances with local criminals who really knew the terrain and really knew the local authorities. And, you know, El Chapo played that role, too. You know, the, the way that. Uh, the Mexican traffickers started moving cocaine was that the Colombians, you know, the, the U.S. shut down the, the smuggling routes through the Caribbean in the 80s, and the Colombians needed a way to get coke to the U.S. And so they they made strategic alliances with people like El Chapo in Mexico who could move drugs through Mexico. And El Chapo did the same thing with people in different parts of Mexico. And so... Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it's, it's much more fluid, I think, than than uh, mainstream narratives often um, describe it as. Yeah, one thing that I one thing I'm really interested in, and just just to, this will really show you what a nerd I am. I actually have a question about an endnote in your text. So, thank you, thank you. Um, so, but uh, when you talk about those local crime families, and the, and they have the you know. They've been smuggling, going back to you know being bootleggers of of booze yeah. in the twenties and thirties. And uh, one thing I'm interested in as a criminologist is these sort of these these situations where different crime groups work with each other. So, for example, I know like the Mexican cartels are supplying Sicilian and, and Italian crime groups in Europe. Right. And um, like you just mentioned the Colombians and the Mexicans working together. And um, 
you talk about how some of those local crime families, even going back to the 30s and probably the 20s, actually had business arrangements with old school Italian and Jewish syndicate guys. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. You talk about Bugsy Siegel. And I don't know, yeah. I don't know how much um, you got. I mean, you don't really get into that so much in the book, but I don't know if you if you um, had any comment on that. I just thought that was a really interesting, like kind of footnote to this. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the th- the thing to understand is that the you know the drug trade is a market, and it, it, it there's a it, it, it's a global market, and so when when one smuggling route gets shut down, people along the along the distribution chain need to look for new ways of supplying, right? So when you know when when drug traffickers in New York, let's say, you know, Italian or, or Jewish mobsters who were selling heroin at a street level in, in New York, when, when they might, you know, when they had a shipment busted or, or something, they might need to look elsewhere for sources. And so they, you know, they would often go to Mexico. And there was a lot of sort of interchange between Mexican traffickers and, and Italian mobsters. Um, again, unfortunately not, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't, go too in depth with that, but it, it really is this fascinating illustration of how this is all linked, you know, and one, you know, one, um, one thing that I, one of the reasons that I really sort of found the life story of El Chapo was as to be useful is that you see these larger issues playing out in his life, you know, and so in, in, in the 1960s, uh, there was this boom in demand for marijuana and that, turbocharged the drug trade in Sinaloa. And then in the 1970s, uh, the U.S. and European police shut down what was known as the French Connection, which was mm-hmm. how heroin got from Turkey to Marseille to New York. Um, and so we have this sort of this balloon effect, right, where the, the people who were supplying drugs in New York needed a new source. And so what happens? The, the uh, opium market, the heroin market in, in Sinaloa explodes. And that happens right at the time that El Chapo is is sort of you know uh, getting into the drug trade as as a young man. And the same thing happened with with cocaine in the eighties, uh, and the same thing happened uh, again with with heroin in the in the starting in the early two thousands. Um, as the demand grew, uh, the 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 infrastructure in Sinaloa grew. Yeah, I mean, I something I tell my students like when we think about. Globalization. I mean, sometimes we we talk about this as something with with neoliberalism that picks up steam in the 1990s and to a certain extent the 80s. But if you want to talk about globalization, it's been going on for decades in the underworld, <laughs> way before yeah. Margaret Thatcher. And it, like, it has, <laughs> it has. But but Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan really gave it a shot in the arm. Oh yeah, right. Um, because right. you know the 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 sort of the rise of of neoliberal economics made it a lot easier for, for, you know, if I'm a trafficker in Mexico, it it was after 1994, it was easier for me to load, you know, a couple hundred kilos of cocaine onto a train or truck and just send it through a port of entry into the United States because the, the increase in traffic going across the border there meant that fewer trucks could get screened. And so, you know, even as, you know, the, the, the ability for humans, for people to cross those borders, even as that has, you know, been intentionally and pretty brutally uh, uh, restricted, the ability for capital and for goods to move across borders has just continued to increase. And that was just as true for, for 
you know, cocaine as it was for tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, there there is a. Sorry, I would I would argue not to get too ideological here, but a, tra- <laughs> a tragic irony that that you're right that um, goods and capital can go across borders, but not people. But but I digress. I don't um, know if that's an, <laughs> I don't know if that's ironic. I think that's um, pretty. Uh, Pretty intentional. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, if you look at the, the neoliberal uh, masters of the universe, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not even masters, of the, like, in the end of the book, I try to break it all down, and I address the issue of, you know, we all know that the drug, the war on drugs is is a failure, right? That seems pretty obvious to me, and I, we see that more and more with, with, you know, marijuana being legalized and starting to address sentencing disparities and starting to understand the way in which the war on drugs has harmed Americans and has harmed Mexicans, but I would argue that it's not a it's not a failure. It's it's you know like G. Gordon Liddy said, it's only a failure if you don't know the true motive. And I'm not saying you know I, I, you said masters of the universe. I'm not saying that this is a conspiracy. I'm saying that this is a whole bunch of overlapping and sometimes competing interests that have a vested interest in the status quo continuing because they're making money off of it. You know, the DEA's budget goes up every year. You know, the, the Mexican military has, uh, has, has its, its power has increased dramatically since 2007. Uh, the, the, you know, the politicians along the border can get elected on, by scaremongering about, about cartels. And so all of these institutions and, and, and people, you know, have their own part in this larger picture that, ensures that this just hideous grinding forever war will continue. And, and I think it's really important to, to name names and to, to understand who is helping this continue so that we can start to unravel that. Yeah, it is, it is more of a structural analysis than, um, than uh, yeah, any type of conspiracy. And even within neoliberalism, obviously, it's very complicated. You have you know, pe- bureaucrats at the, right. you know, that the, the World Bank or IMF or whatever, who, right. who studied classical liberal economics right. at, in the Ivy League schools. But then you have corporate, you know, investors who have their own sort of agenda in terms of neoliberalism and you have right. foreign well, policy hawks and things like I, that. I wouldn't say that it's complicated. I would say it's pretty simple. You know, people are making money. Right. Pe- people have a material interest in, you know, drug traffickers have a material interest in drugs being illegal because they make more money. And the, and the cops that they pay off have a material interest because they have this sort of mission statement of, of combating drugs that allows them to you know, have a greater militarization and a great, greater securitization of the country while also getting rich from bribes. And so, you know, I, 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 I don't want to scare people away by saying it's complicated. I think that if you look at it from sort of a, you know, a material basis it's quite simple yeah i think that's fair um would you say it's sort of a rational choice theory would you apply that or not necessarily uh, from the, it's from been the, a while since it's been a while since college yeah that's so. right. I, don't, I don't mean to give you an exam here i apologize <laughs> um but i just i can't help it i'm a theory nerd but but anyhow well, tell me what you mean by that I, like what well i just like rational choice like um the idea that that the argument that human nature people are inherently selfish and they're going to always act in their best interest or, or I should say in an in interest to enhance their own material status and their own yes. well-being. I would say that. I would say that. And I do think it's important to understand that everyone or pretty much everyone 
involved in in the drug trade, whether they're they're cops or or, or drug traffickers, um, or just people trying to survive, uh, are acting in in rational self interest. Even when there's uh, you know behavior that might seem outlandish or difficult to understand, you know, when you look at Las Setas, you know, the the sort of original sort of paramilitarized um, uh, private army within the drug trade, Los Setas had a, had a rational interest in seeming insane, in, in telegraphing and, and video, like, you know, in, in, in making it clear how brutal they were. It was a branding exercise, you know? And so, so yes, I think that, I think that it's really important to, to look at the, you know, at, at this behave, these behaviors as rational, because that's the only way that we can understand the real motives, and that's the only way we can understand how to, you know, even gradually begin to walk back some of the just generalized misery and brutality that has that has uh, you know been been created by this war on drugs. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. That even though, obviously. And we, we had uh, Leo Silva, who was the DEA supervisor in Monterrey on a few weeks ago. Right. And he talked a lot about the Zetas, but um, how there, how on the one hand, yeah, it, it's yeah, it is pathological the type of violence, but yet there is a logic to it too. Right. That's really it's a really interesting point. Um, and and when you talk about like the you know just the the rational self interest, and when we think about like supply management and things like that, people that study econ, it's really fascinating. Your book, how El Chapo, just how. Uh, you don't have to condone it, but but um, how the the ingenuity, like like how are they right. getting drugs into the United States? Well, all of the above: trains, planes, automobiles, right. trucks, tunnels. Uh, it's really right. like like as long as the demand is there, uh, they, they. I mean, there's a find lot of money on the table. There's a lot of money on the table, and people, you're always going to find new ways to to get your hands on that money. And there's always going to be officials who you can pay off, and there's always going to be you know, uh, places where you can dig tunnels under the border and there's always going to be, uh, you know, ports of entry that, that you can exploit. And, you know, that's why I sort of, you know, that's why I sort of am, am mystified at, at, by people who, who think that there's any stopping this, you know, that there's any way to actually have drugs be illegal and, and prevent drugs from finding, you know, the people that want to do them. Right, I I agree with you on that. Um, and something, if we just while we have a little bit of time left, um, I guess I don't know if this question is a little bit more about the the gangster side of it, but something that's really striking to me because I I was I'm not an expert on El Chapo is how you you break down how he had all these strategic alliances with these other heavy hitters and other groups. Yeah. And like I mentioned, it was like a network and it seems like one by one, he manages to burn bridges with all of them. Yeah. And this, this, this causes a lot of the violence that we're, that we're talking yes. about. And if you can I mean, speak yeah, to that. El, El Chapo was around for a very long time. You know, he, he got started in the drug trade as a pretty lowly smuggler in the 1970s. And he was active pretty much until 2016. That's a very long time. And he, you know, for a long time, he had some, he had some very enduring alliances. Uh, some alliances broke down earlier than others. But I get the sense that if you're in that game long enough, you know, you're going to, your interests are going to diverge from someone else's. And I think that, you know, one by one, he, uh, you know, his interests diverged from those of 
certain allies and their relationships broke down and they started to fight. You know, that happened in the early 90s with the Ariano Felix family. That happened in the mid-2000s with the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas. It happened in uh, 2008 with um, with the Beltran Leva brothers, who were some of his oldest collaborators. And yeah, by the end, I mean, he, you know, he, he remained pretty, uh, you know, well-respected and, and, and well-protected in Sinaloa. But, you know, it's, uh, I would, I would argue that, you know, he, he, he had sort of, by the time he was captured, he was only captured because he had outlived his usefulness to enough people. You know, he was no longer um, untouchable. Uh, and, and I think that that's in part because he, he, you know, over time was willing to sort of break those alliances and it caught up to him. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know uh, I really appreciate your time. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I like that you're being patient with me because I just have a couple of more questions that I, I really want to get to that I that really strike me as fascinating in your book. And in terms of like, you know, to your point of him, the, one of the reasons why he lasted so long was, uh, you know, I've, I've heard rumors that, El Champo had reached out to the DEA, but when you when you read your book, I mean, you confirm it. Like this is this is yep. a, this is matter of fact, right? This yep. is on record that he was reaching out to the DEA. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, is that just the rational self interest thing? I mean, that that just yeah. You know. I mean, so he so he I, I won't give too much away, but yeah, I was able to confirm that in 1998 he he actually met with the DEA while he was in prison in Guadalajara, Mexico. Um, and again, he he reached out to the DEA shortly after escape, and he continued to you know he he had this this lawyer named uh, Umberto Loya Castro who he who would who met with the DEA uh, multiple times over the next few years in the early two thousands and mid two thousands, and I think that it's you know it's an extension of of um, like I said prior to the to the two thousands a lot of the um, you know a lot of the sort of wet work. Uh, in the drug trade was done, done by cops and done by soldiers. And I think that El Chapo saw the DEA as, um, you know, potentially malleable, you know, potentially, I, I don't think that he was necessarily, I don't think it, it goes as deep as like, the, you know, that there was like a, a conspiracy where the DEA was working directly with El Chapo. But I think he had a sense that he could, you know, feed them information that would harm his enemies and thereby help him. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, DEA was only too happy to take that information and, and, and hurt his enemies and because, you know, that was able to justify their, their sort of mission and their, and their budget requests at the end of the year. Yeah, it, it, I rem, it reminded me of Whitey Bulger, and we'll see if you think there's a parallel there, where Whitey Bulger, you know, to the very end was saying, you know, I wasn't a snitch. I was using the FBI to, to yes, neutralize absolutely. my rivals. <laughs> absolutely. I would say, and, and nice, nice buddy Bulger uh, reference. I'm from, I'm from Boston. So that, okay. that was large. Um, yeah, I, I would absolutely like, I, I think that like, you know, when we, when I talk about El Chapo's, uh, you know, meetings with the DEA, I don't think, you know, uh, on, at first glance, it's sort of like, what, you know, where's the Ometo? Where's the, right. the, the vow of silence? Um, and I don't think that he was necessarily, you know, it wasn't like he was, um, necessarily an, like a, a, I think that the, the sort of like the role of an informant is often like informants are often criminals who continue to engage in, in criminal behavior. And so I think that El Chapo wasn't, it wasn't like he was <laughs> trying to take down the drug trade and trying to help the DEA uh, in its, in its mission. He right. was trying to uh, use them against his enemies and the DEA was trying to use him against theirs. It was a strategic, uh, I wouldn't even call it a partnership, but it was a strategic relationship 
for both of them. And I, and I, you know, I, I do think that it, um, it, it sort of goes beyond the, the idea of any kind of like on code or, or, you know, opposition to snitches. Like that only applies, uh, if, if you're losing, that only applies if you're, <laughs> if you're, have, if you have no power. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Fair point. So well, one last thing I want to ask you, and then we'll, we'll, you know, have you uh, talk about what, what the future holds for you. Sure. But, um, you mentioned Narcoland in your book, which is uh, mm-hmm. Hernandez is the author. And I, I have that book, but I haven't read it yet. But I'm aware of her, if I'm not, if I'm correct. Is it is it a female author? I, I should even. Annabelle, Annabelle Hernandez, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Um, that the premise is that the Mexican government, with sort of maybe the tacit support of the United States, but that the Mexican government, and, and you, you talk about the, the, I think it's the attorney general, um, who, who may, may have been the person facilitating this, that that there was a coordinated effort. I'm I, I, not saying conspiracy necessarily, but a coordinated effort. I think, I think effort. Annabelle Hernandez would say it was a conspiracy, yeah, I think, a coordinated right, effort right. To, to favor El Chapo yes. against other drug traffickers. Right. And you know, I, I, there were certainly, certainly high-level high government officials in, in Mexico who were actively working with or for El Chapo. You know, one of the... One of the Big ones right now. Uh, uh, this this guy named Gennaro Garcia Luna, alleged he was the former, you know, essentially the former head of the FBI in Mexico. He's currently sitting, you know, in a in a federal detention cell, like two miles away from me right now in in New York, uh, for allegedly working with El Chapo. And you know, I I think Annabelle Hernandez uh, is a tremendously courageous reporter and has faced a lot of um, of threats against her life. And I have great respect for her. Um, I think that uh, I don't know if I would necessarily um, paint as much of a picture of a conspiracy as she would, so much as that you know the the collaboration between various elements of the state and drug traffickers like El Chapo and other drug traffickers um, was sort of built into the model. You know, the the drug trade in Mexico grew with and as a part of sometimes the 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 state. You know, it, it, it was, you can't, it's, it's hard to separate them. And so I think, you know, when it comes to El Chapo, yeah, there is actually, you know, if you look at the numbers of people who were arrested or killed in the uh, mid to late 2000s in, in Felipe Calderon's war on drugs, um, you know, the, the numbers show that a lot fewer of El Chapo's people were getting captured and killed. A lot more of his rivals were getting captured and killed. And that does raise questions. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to defend this policy at all, by the way. But I think, you know, we, we've talked to people in DEA, and someone might make an argument that, well, um, even if he's a bad guy, overall, you're going to reduce the violence and reduce the amount of drugs yeah. coming into the United States if just one kingpin is calling the right. shots. Yeah, there is a, there's a certain <laughs> real politic to that. Yes, right. right. Of, Good way to put we're it. We're going right. to work with the guy. We're, we're going to work with the guy we can work with. Right. Um, and if you honestly, like you know, if you look at the if you look at the violence that has has arisen in the last 15 years in Mexico, um, I can't condone that policy, but it's also kind of hard to argue with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that's something that I've talked about. I asked uh, our DEA guest a few weeks ago what he thought about the so-called kingpin strategy that it seems to me like a lot of the time when they take out, whether it was Pablo or whomever here in the United States, whenever they take out the the, the so-called shot caller or crime boss, yeah. 
Um, it seems like the the vines gets more diffuse and more decentralized. And well, that's just a fact. I mean, that's yeah, that's just a fact. You know, that is a that's like a we've 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 seen that direct correlation in in Mexico since since you know before 2007, but particularly after 2007, with this really sort of concerted effort to capture uh, kingpins, as you know, as as we know it as the kingpin strategy. What what has, what happens is you know if if you take out the leadership of a, of a criminal network, the people under those, uh, you know, those leaders don't stop being criminals. They don't stop trafficking drugs. Um, they just, you know, start competing with one another. There becomes a power vacuum. And even more pernicious than that power vacuum is the fact that uh, it, sometimes the ability for those networks to traffic drugs with the same sort of logistics that they had previously is reduced. That doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing crime. It means that they, you know, that they are going to start turning inward. They're going to start focusing their crime more on people in Mexico. You know, so you see a rise in more violent crime. You see a rise in kidnapping for ransom. You see a rise in extortion of legitimate business people. Uh, you see just a, a generalized increase in violence. And I, I think that the DEA, you know has and, and my, my, has argued that, you know, this is a sign that, that things are working. And my response to that is, you know, what, what's, uh, what's the point of this? If the, if the, you know, what's the point of disrupting drug trafficking, if the result in Mexico is that it gets 10 times worse, you know, that, that seems pretty indefensible to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and I don't know what, what the answer is. Um, but, um, I think it's something that we should at least consider, as well, policymakers and whatever, you know, yeah. I'll ahead. tell you what the answer is, and it's not it's not easy or fast. I, I mean, you know, we have to legalize drugs, we have to regulate drugs, and we have to, uh, you know, Mexico has to uh, focus on economic justice and and opportunity for people and education and you know an a, an increase in in state uh, you know state function and. Uh, an increase in sort of a, a, a true transparent justice system, and that's not going to happen fast. And the you know we the, there's a, we, you're not going to unring the bell that's been rung. You know, I, if if in 2007 the answer would have been okay, don't send in the military. You know, let's start on the economic justice. Let's start on the judicial reform. Let's start on the police reform. Um, now, it's you know, the situation has gotten so much worse. I mean, recovery is always harder than than prevention, right? And right now, there's so much to recover from that it's going to take a long time. But if we legalize drugs, if we regulate drugs, and if we focus on giving people a way to live dignified lives without turning to, to uh, crime to pay the bills, uh, you know, that is going to slowly reduce the levels of violence and slowly reduce the number of people going into organized crime. So it's not an easy or a quick solution, but the, the failed policies of the past have made it so bad that it, it's, it, it, it sort of necessarily is going to take a long time to, to fix the problems that, that those policies have caused. Yeah. And I think of like, just just start off in terms of on our side, the American side, like, like do no harm. Like I, when I'm reading your book and you're talking about like during the, the, George W. Bush administration, and and there's a lot of administrations complicit in this. I'm not trying to single out him, but 
when you're talking about like the four, like you know you're writing oh, oh so they're going to give Mex- the the Mexican military a billion dollars. I'm reading your book. And I'm like stop, stop, right. <laughs> just stop. Yeah, and and you know like, I mean th- there's there's a lot of you know the 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 the, mil- the military unit that captured El Chapo was the Mexican Marines, and the Mexican Marines have been held up as as a um, you know as sort of oh they're the least corrupt, they're the most sort of you know they, they were a very effective tip of the spear that the United States used to capture people like El Chapo. Um, the, the Marines also, you know, they, they started being used in that way around 2010. And since 2010, the number of people that they kill and disappear has just skyrocketed, you know? And so we see again and again, whenever a, a, a police force or a military unit has the backing of the United States, they tend to do some really nasty stuff because they know that they're untouchable. And so, yeah, so, you know, to, to just pump money and weapons to people with a really nasty human rights uh, record was a um, you know colossal, uh, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I think they knew what they were doing, but it was a colossal uh, crime. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, um, just a fascinating study. And I really encourage our listeners to, to buy this book, El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous Drug lord uh, Noah is an intrepid reporter, an impressive uh, reporter, and uh, I mean, what a great book! Just a fun book to read. Although it's you know, it's obviously very serious, but um, it's um, it's accessible. And like I said, a rip roaring read. I think whether you're just a true crime junkie or you you want to learn more about the politics of of Latin America, I think you're you're going to find this this book really um, um, compelling. So what what's the future hold for for uh, Noah? Well. Right now, I'm trying to get a little bit of rest. <laughs> Good for you. Honest. It's been a hectic <laughs> two and a half years. Um, but, you know, I, I I would, my goal is to do more reporting like this in, in Mexico and, and throughout Latin America. You know, I don't I don't want to just sort of use the the tragedy and, and pain of, of the war on drugs to sell a book and then move on. Like, I, I, I care deeply about, about these issues, and I want to continue reporting on them in a way that, you know, continues to sort of demystify a lot of the structures that we've been talking about. You know, I, I, I would love to move away from the sort of individual analysis of, of this kingpin or that kingpin and begin to, to look at sort of the deeper, the deeper structures. So, uh, you know, keep your eye out. I, I hope to be doing more, more of this kind of reporting uh, very soon. Well, I hope so. And and do you have um, any insight into it? Has uh, El Chapo? Does he have a copy of this? Do you, do you know? I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he knows about it. Okay. I'm sure he knows about it. He 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 cares. As readers will find out uh, by reading the book, he cares a lot about his image, and he cares a lot about sort of the the stories that are told about him. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do have to imagine that he he knows the book exists. I don't know if he's able to get a book in the prison where he is because right. it's pretty uh, restricted. But I, I do have to imagine that he that he knows about it. Yeah, that, yeah, pro- probably. So, is there any? Uh, do you have a website or anything you want to point out where people can find out more about your your reporting? And you can find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm uh, perhaps overly accessible there. <laughs> and uh, I also have a, a newsletter that I just launched this summer um, called uh, what did I call it? Like some, the well, something drug war zone. Um, but the URL is just noahhorowitz.substack.com. Um, and I'm, I plan to be, you know, sort of using that to expand on issues from the book, 
Uh, I want to write like a character list that I should have put in the book because it, it can be kind of confusing. Yeah. So, you know, if, if people want to find some of my, I think a lot of my, um, a lot of the sort of more nitty gritty niche writing that I'm going to be doing in the next few weeks and months is going to be there. So noahorowitz.substack.com. Well, people buy this book. I, I think as far as I'm concerned, the, the two most important books out there, uh, Yolan Grillo is a, is a friend of our show. He's been on his book, El Narco, and this book, El Chapo by Noah Hurlwitz. These are the two best books, in my opinion, out there. I don't read uh, the books in Espanol. I know there's some great reporting down there and analysis, but in terms of English, in English, these are my two favorite books. So um, I'm, we're super excited to have you on here. Thanks for your time, Noah. Good luck with everything, and hopefully we'll have you back on again. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been great. Okay, this is uh, Jimmy Bucciolato for the Original Gangsters podcast. Please follow us on social media. We'll see you next week. Out.